You may be familiar with them from high school or maybe even middle school, science class, geometry. They are if-then statements, um, conditionals, they call them. Some of your palms are getting sweaty already just remembering geometry, things like that. Um, if A, then B, in logic class they called it uh, modus ponens, which Latin never made it any clearer. I don't know why they did that. So you're thinking things like, so do you, what do you mean if A, then B? So like if, if I play the lottery, then I win a million dollars? Not exactly. It's more like if you play the lottery a million times, then your neighbor wins a million dollars. That's, that's how that works for them. But uh, here's a set of if-then statements. See if it resonates with you. This is if mom this, then mom's that. Um, the very first one up there is if, if your child makes the honor roll, uh, then auto-post humble brag to Facebook. If there is a sale at Target, um, then cancel everything else on your calendar. Next one is if Instagram selfie gets zero likes, then schedule appointment with therapist. Um, drop down to this one with the scissors icon here. If do-it-yourself project finally succeeds, then open Etsy shop. The next one, if tagged in bad photo on Facebook, then unfriend whoever posted it. And the very last one, if approach a cheesecake factory, then turn my calorie counter off is the way that works. But here's one uh, for us all. If I am saved, then what? If I am saved, like we talked about last week, then what, what must follow? How would you fill in the blank? How would your neighbors or your family who are watching you f fill in the blank? Um, why don't we just hang on to that for a moment. Let's pray, and then we'll open up and see what Peter has to say about this. Bow with me, please. Father, help us now to align not just our professions, but our lives with the grace that you have given that is greater than our sin. Use your word by your spirit now to that end, we pray. Amen. Amen. So last week, Peter began his first letter with this awesome portrait of our salvation. It sounded like this. It's the work of the whole trinity, the foreknowledge of the Father, the sanctification of the Spirit, the shedding of the Son's own lifeblood. It's an expression of God's great mercy. We're born again to a living hope through Jesus' own resurrection. It brings us an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for us, our faith being guarded by God's own power. It's greater than our many trials. It's more precious than gold. It's why we love Jesus and believe in him and rejoice in him. It's the very salvation of our souls. The prophets pointed us to it. They preached to us as good news by those who sent the Holy Spirit. Even the angels long to see it from our perspective. And as we looked at that last week, we said, then our suffering is worth it. What we face is worth it, so very worth it. And so we love and believe and rejoice in Jesus supremely. Now, 10 of those 12 verses last week were one long, tangly sentence, and there were no um, 
No commands in them whatsoever. Those first, entire first 12 verses without commands. But today in the back end of 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter begins to load in the commands. So it's like last week he gave us the if clause, if you are saved. This week he gives us the then clause. And he says then these things should happen. And there are four life-shaping traits that Peter's gonna lay out for us um, that are to shape our lives if we are saved. And let me, as we go through this passage, let me get you to think about two really important things. First of all, I don't really care if you can recite all four things. They're easy. It's hope, holiness, fear, and love, okay? They're, it's easy. That's not the goal, is to leave saying, got all four of them on my list. I'd like you to think about, is there one of these that Christ is inviting you to really grow in, to make a focus of your prayerful pursuit in the days that are ahead, even this week? So. Think about it more along those lines. And the second thing is to remember that these flow out of what we saw last week. They flow out of our salvation. And even though we strive to honor Christ in these matters, we do it in total dependence on his grace. That's what changes us. It's, it's about trusting before it's about trying. Okay? So let's look at the first trait in verse 13 of chapter 1. That's where we'll start. Therefore, having described this awesome salvation that we just read about, therefore, preparing your minds for action, being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ, that is, when he returns. Um, So first, first kind of point here, if we are saved, then we are to hope in the future grace that is ours when Christ returns. If we are saved, then we set our hope on his return. And the language is interesting here. It implies that there's gonna be a battle for our minds in this, with this hope, regard to this hope. It says, prepare your minds for action. If you have the King James Bible, it's more literal. It says, gird up the loins of your mind. Um, the idea being, if you had a long robe, like back in the day, you would tuck it in so that you were agile you could move, you could defend, you could do battle. Be sober-minded. There's gonna be a battle for our minds as regards this hope. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So Peter anticipates there's opposition to this hope. We're going to have to focus and pay attention to our minds or we will lose hope. Just a couple pages later in this letter, he's gonna write about this. In chapter three, he says, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. And in in 1 Peter, as he writes, these are not questions coming from seekers or people who are curious. They're coming from opponents of the faith, adversaries who would do you harm simply because you hold this hope. He calls us to be prepared. You know, our world is peddling lots of lesser hopes. Um, Retirement, beach house, um, good health, better paying job, graduating at last, uh, married at last, those kinds of things. And there's nothing wrong with those things necessarily. 
But there is only one hope in the New Testament that's described as an anchor for your souls. And that's the salvation that Jesus brings us. We hope in what comes to us at his return. Now, that requires that the return of Jesus find its way onto the radar of our minds. Peter says that's where the battle is. To keep the hope that is the return of Christ on the radar of our minds. And that does not come from reading books by people who say they've died and gone there. Okay? It comes from reading the scriptures. Um, we have to think about heaven before we can hope in it. Here's just a couple glimpses from the scriptures of what waits you in heaven. Paul says, he's writing about whether he, he, should, he would die or live, and he says, I'm hard-pressed to choose between life or death. But my desire is actually to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. What waits for you is far better than this life. <clears throat> just a couple pages later same book of Philippians he says our citizenship it's in heaven and from it we await a savior the Lord Jesus Christ that's the big plus but also he's going to transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself this body's going to get an upgrade it's going to be awesome um, Jesus would say uh, in, in John 14, in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. <clears throat> so Jesus himself is preparing a place for you. How awesome is that going to be where you can be with him? Revelation 7 invites us into this scene. Imagine yourself here. After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes, peoples, languages, standing before the throne, before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and they worshiped God saying amen blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever amen I know that when some of you think about that that's our great preoccupation in heaven it sounds boring to you it's not gonna be boring of course there are other things we do but this is the central thing we do we get to you're gonna be in that scene you're going to be rubbing up against angels and winged creatures and all people from every tribe, tongue, and language, and you are going to be declaring God's glory. This waits for you. It's good to have that on the radar of our minds. J.C. Ryle um, helps us think about it this way when he wrote long ago. He said, the man who's about to set sail for Australia or New Zealand as a settler is naturally anxious to know something about his future home. Its climate, its employments, its habitats, or its inhabitants rather, its ways, its customs. All these are subjects of deep interest to him. You are leaving the land of your nativity. You are going to spend the rest of your life in a new hemisphere. It would be strange indeed if you did not desire information about your new abode. 
Now, surely, if we hope to dwell forever in that better country, even a heavenly one, we ought to seek all the knowledge we can get about it. Before we go to our eternal home, we should try to become acquainted with it. And that acquaintance, the more we know about heaven, the more we long for it, hope in what Christ is bringing us, the fullness of grace that waits for us when Jesus returns. Think of it like this. This is a well-traveled story, but it it helps us today, I hope. There's an elderly lady. She's been diagnosed with a terminal illness. She's been given three months to live. So as she's getting her things in order, she contacts her pastor, and he comes to her house to discuss certain aspects of her final wishes, and she tells him what song she wants sung at the funeral, what scripture she wants read, what outfit she wants to be buried in. And everything is in order. Pastor's getting ready to leave the house when... When the lady says, she remembers something very important, she says, there's one more thing. He says, well, what's that? She says, this is very, very important. I want to be buried with a fork in my right hand. And she says, that's, I see that surprises you. And he's like, well, that's a new one. No one has ever requested that before. She says, let me explain. In all my years of attending church socials and potluck dinners, I always remembered that when the dishes of the main course were being cleared, someone would inevitably lean over and say, keep your fork. Which is my favorite part, because I knew that something better was coming, like velvety chocolate cake or deep dish apple pie. So I just want people to see me there in that casket with a fork in my hand, and I want them to wonder, what's with the fork? And then I want you, pastor, to tell them, keep your fork. The best is yet to come. So at the funeral, of course, people are walking by the woman's casket, They see the pretty dress she's wearing, the fork placed in her right hand, and over and over, the pastor gets asked the question, "Uh, what's with the fork? And he smiles, and he tells him what it symbolized for her, what it meant to her. And so when he gave the talk at her funeral, he explained the fork and what it meant and what it represented, and he told the people that he could not stop thinking about the fork, and probably they wouldn't be able to either. He says, oh, so the next time you reach down for your fork, let it remind you ever so gently that the best is yet to come. And it is gonna be so worth it, okay? So do you have this hope? Is our hope when Christ comes for us on the radar of your mind at all? Um, Are you disciplining your mind to set it your hope fully on what waits for you at the return of Jesus. Let me, let me invite you into something uh, that may be an encouragement to you. We're starting next week a life change class. Um, it's this hour in room 602, and it is on the hope of heaven. Um, and let me encourage you, if you have to reshuffle your schedule, come to worship first hour, uh, this class will help you get the reality and hope of heaven on your radar. Um, If you'd like to read, uh, our staff are reading together this little book. It's called 50 Days of Heaven by Randy Alcorn. It's just a daily devotional. We're we're in the slow group, so we're reading one day a week and discussing it together. So if you want to join us, uh, it's a great resource. It's drawn on Randy Alcorn's wonderful book called Heaven. That's a text in that class that's going on this hour. So um, if you are saved then are you setting your hope on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ? 
Second trait. If you are saved, then we are to live holy lives. Look at the next couple verses in verse 14 through 16. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy, says the Lord. Be holy. The idea is that we are set apart for God, that we would no longer conform to the lives that we lived before Christ. Okay? We will live different. We'll be holy. I suppose you could say, in a sense, we're supposed to be like Spruce Pine. Spruce Pine is this little town near where Stuart Bowman grew up, out in the mountains. You can see the little dot there that shows you where Spruce Pine is. And uh, when you drive through there, this is what you'll see. You'll see uh, mines uh, all throughout the mountains there. And what they are mining is this, the purest natural quartz on earth. It comes from spruce pine. And it's key in manufacturing the silicon used in computer chips. Probably there is um, sand from these mines in your cell phone that they use to run your cell phone. It's an elaborate process to go from that to the, the purest of silicon that they use <clears throat> in, your, in the chips, in the computer chips. There's a chemical reaction, separates out a lot of the oxygen, it's real elaborate. It leaves you with what's called silicon metal, which is about 99% pure silicon, but that's not nearly good enough for high-tech uses. Silicon for solar panels has to be 99.999999% pure, six nines. It has to be that pure after the decimal. But computer chips are even more demanding. Their silicon needs to be 99.99199% pure uh, to be used for that. That's the, the, what they find in spruce pine is suitable for that use. He says, we're talking about one lonely atom of something that is not silicone among billions of silicon companions, writes geologist Michael Wellen. See, Jesus died to this end, that we would be holy and set apart for God as a result of that. He says in Colossians chapter one, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Paul says this, this is the intent of Jesus' love for us. Christ loved the church. He gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. This is our calling. Paul says this is the will of God for you your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality for God has not called us for impurity but in holiness. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. We are now obedient to our good Father, like we sang earlier, in heaven. This morning, it's important to ask then, are you conforming to your former passions? Are they still ruling your life? 
And if so, know that today you are being called to be set apart and holy from all of that for God to be holy as he is holy. This is the day he's inviting you to lay aside your old passions. And you should say yes to that. You should welcome that, the holy freedom that Christ died for you to possess. So part of my morning ritual every day, I have a a ring here that has a cross on it. I take it off at night, I put it on in the morning, and when I put it on every morning, part of what I pray is verse 16. Lord, make me holy like you are holy. Set me apart this day for your use. Okay. I, I pray that every, every day. Um, it's part of, part of my morning prayer times. If you are saved, then are you living holy? Peter says we must. There's a third trait he lists here in the midst of all this, and this one gets a little, even a little bit thicker as he goes through here. Um, he says, if you are saved, then you should live in fear. And that sounds totally backwards when we first think of it. We tend to think, wait, wait, if I'm saved, shouldn't I be free from fear? And that's a yes and no, as, as Peter uses it here. Look at verse 17. If you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile, that is throughout your, your life here on earth. We should live in fear, Peter says, because we will face an impartial judge one day. And if you're guilty, that's a pretty terrifying thought. And if we're honest, we've all got plenty to be guilty about. I mean, think about what Jesus says in Matthew 12. Um, he, He says this. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. But throughout Scripture, the fear of God is presented as a good thing. Um, it frees us from the fear of man, Scripture says. It, it delights God. He rewards it. He blesses it. It endears us to him. It produces trust in us. It shapes our character. It makes us men and women of integrity. It humbles us. It keeps us from sin. All of these things and a whole lot more. The scriptures say this fear of God is good. It comes to us good. And Peter shapes it here by two things. First, by the fact that this impartial judge, he's our father. And that shapes how we feel about that. That shapes our fear. Right? It It makes it both less fearful on the one hand and more fearful on the other. Ed Ed Welch describes this fear as being on a spectrum. So over here he calls it terror fear. We live in terror, we hide from God, we know only God's justice. But as we enter into faith with God, we move over towards this end and it changes to awe and devotion, and trust, and worship, what he calls worship fear. And so we seek and draw near and submit to God. We know of God's holy justice, but also his holy love for us. So fear's a spectrum of sorts, and the idea that the impartial judge of the universe is also our father lessens this fear and moves us towards that kind of fear. And now add to that, We fear 
that we will disappoint the Father that so loves us, right? It's the last thing we want to do. And there's a second thing that shapes our fear as well. Peter's gonna write about it in the next few verses. Track with me through these, starting verse 17 again. If you call on him as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you are ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. So let me unravel that a little bit. Um, Peter says, conduct yourself with fear throughout your lives here because we know that we have been ransomed from the futile, worthless way of life that's lived by those apart from Christ. Because these were probably first-generation Christians. Their family tree lived apart from Christ. It was futile, and he says it's worthless. Um, but he says, our attention is now drawn to the fact that this ransom, this redemption, was both costly and steadfast. More costly and more sure than gold, which will perish, and our salvation never will. So this precious lifeblood of Jesus rescued us from a life apart from God. And even the timing, he says, is an expression of God's love and care for us. Jesus was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but he was only made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God. Even the timing is an expression of God's love for his readers, and, for, and that's us, for us. John Piper um, helped me with this analogy. He says, imagine a girl who's from a wealthy family. She is kidnapped, held for ransom. Because her father loves her and only because of that, he liquidates all of his assets. He sells his house. He sells his wedding band. He sells it all to get together in cash the ransom that's needed to rescue his daughter. He goes to the middle of a field. He sits the suitcase containing the cash down, and he walks away, and he watches as his daughter comes out towards the, of the woods. She picks up the suitcase. She takes it back to her captors, and she turns around, puts her arm around her captor, and turns to her father and says, Sucker! And she walks away. He says, Fear that. Fear doing that to the one who loves you so that he would pay such a price. Fear devaluing and diminishing the worth of Christ's great sacrifice for you to free you from sin only to go back into captivity once again. Conduct yourselves in fear of such a thing befalling you. So if you are saved, then do you conduct your life in fear of living that way? There's one more trait, he says, needs to flow out of this salvation. He says, if, if you are saved, then we need to love one another deeply, earnestly, he says. Look at 
these last verses in our chapter. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass. He's quoting the Old Testament here. All flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. This word is the good news, the gospel that was preached to you. So we are to love deeply one another because we've been irrevocably and imperishably born again through the word of God. He says it's like an imperishable seed. And that seed language, is, it brings to mind the fact that we are the father's seed. It's a kind of a like father, like son, like daughter kind of an imagery that he's bringing in as part of that. We are to love as he has loved us. And oh, how he loves us. He redeemed us. He ransomed us with the most precious of currencies. We saw it in 1 John, in 1 John 4. It, it reads this way. It says, in this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So love one another. If, if you are saved, then love one another deeply. And he shows us how a little bit in the opening verses of chapter two, we'll just touch on them. He says, so, since you're supposed to love one another deeply, put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Put it all away. Put these things away. Malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander, because they are incompatible with love. You can't love if those things are in your heart. There's a, there was a Guardian article by Moya Sarner recently, and she says, we live in the age of envy, career envy, kitchen envy, children envy, food envy, upper arm envy, holiday envy. She says, there's an envy for everything, you name it. Uh, she quotes a psychologist, Rachel Andrews, who says that she is seeing more and more envy in her consulting room. She says, I think what social media has done is make everyone accessible for comparison. In the past, people might just have envied their neighbors, but now, she says, we can envy everyone across the world. She says, we carry our envy amplification device around in our pockets. We sleep with it next to our pillows. It tempts us 24 hours a day. The moment we wake up, even if it's in the middle of the night, it's there. You probably never thought of your phone as an envy amplification device before. That's what she calls it. There's another um, psychotherapist in this article, and she says that envy can be even worse than that, what they call comparisonitis. It can be even worse than that. Um, she says the, the word refers to something that can take the destruction of emotional abuse and even violent acts of criminality. Envy is wanting to destroy what someone else has, not just wanting it for yourself, but wanting other people not to have it. It's... It's contrary to love. And so Peter says, put away all of these things. And then he adds this little closing thought. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that you may grow up into salvation. 
And so the fuel for love is longing for this pure spiritual milk, which is his way of describing the scriptures. Long for that. You know, I have, I have four uh, grandchildren now, four grandsons, and when those guys are little, uh, they, they have a way of letting you know when it's time for milk. They scream at the top of their lungs. This is, this is just what they do. And he says, long for scripture like that. Nothing else will assuage these little guys. Nothing else will satisfy them. They must have this, this pure milk that they long for. He says, that should, we should be like that. Nothing else will satisfy us. Um, the word is like fuel for love. In fact, if you think about it, it fuels all these things. It fuels hope. It fuels holiness. It fuels fear. It fuels love. But if you are saved, are you loving, then are you loving one another deeply? Which of those four is the one you need to walk out of this room and own and grow in and make a matter of your daily prayer practices? There's a, there's a philosopher from Greece in the second century. His name is Aristides of Athens. And he wrote an apology, a famous apology, which is like a defense of Christians to the emperor at the time, Emperor, emperor Hadrian. And I want you to hear how he described Christians in his day. It's kind of long, lengthy, so I'll put it on the screen for you. But listen for the language of Peter that we just talked about in his description. But the Christians, O king, they know and trust in God, the creator of heaven and of earth, in whom and from whom are all things, to whom there is no other God as companion, from whom they received commandments which they engraved upon their minds and observe in hope and expectation of the world which is to come. Wherefore, they do not commit adultery or fornication nor bear false witness nor embezzle what is held in pledge nor covet what is not theirs. They honor father and mother. They show kindness to those near to them and their oppressors they comfort and make them their friends. They do good to their enemies and their women, O king, are pure as virgins and their daughters, they are modest and their men keep themselves from every unlawful union and from all uncleanness in the hope of a recompense to come in another, in another world. Further, if, if one or other of them have bondmen and bondwomen or children, slaves, through love, Towards them, they persuade them to become Christians. And when they have done so, they call them brethren without distinction. Falsehood is not found among them, and they love one another. And from widows, they do not turn away their esteem. And they deliver the orphan from him who treats him harshly. And he who has gives to him who has not without boasting. And when they see a stranger, they take him into their homes and rejoice over him as, as a very brother, for they do not call them brethren after the flesh, but brethren after the spirit and in God. And if there's among them any that is poor and needy, well then, they have, if they have no food to spare themselves, they fast two or three days in order to supply to the needy their lack of food. They observe the precepts of their Messiah with much care, living justly and soberly, as the Lord their God commanded them. Every morning and every hour, they give thanks and praise to God for his loving kindness toward them, and for their food and their drink, they offer thanksgiving to him. And if any righteous man among them passes from the world, they rejoice 
and offer thanks to God. And they escort his body as if he were setting out from one place to another near. If we are saved, then may this be said of us.